Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, Elon Musk donated almost $6 billion of stock, but where did it go? We talk about a tax planning strategy that might help you. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, great to see you. Ross, good to see you as well. Hey, I've noticed this trend going around for months now, and that is Wordle. Yes. And Wordle seems like it was designed for someone like me, yet it's been, I don't know how long this thing has been in existence for, but it took me until last week to finally hop on the thing and uh, consider me hooked. Yeah, and they've gotten harder. Uh, So since you're a new Wordle person, and I haven't been doing it that long, but at least a few weeks, but literally in the few weeks that I've been doing it, it has changed hands. Uh, So I believe the New York Times bought it, and uh, the reports are from others that have been doing it longer than I have that it's getting harder. I'm wondering if they're just running out of easy five-letter words. So for anybody that hasn't done this and wants to know what the heck we're talking about. It's a little word game, and you essentially get a certain number of guesses, up to six guesses on the correct word that you need to guess, and it kind of gives you hints along the way of, did you get some of the right letters or the letters in the right place? Um, it's a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. I found myself staring at it for a while going, what word could that possibly be? But I, I do like it a lot. Yeah, the only downside for me is I tend to have an addictive personality, and if I do one, I want to do 100 And you really can only do one a day and can't go to the backlog and do the old words. Well, and I actually like that about it because it basically means it's a fixed piece of time. Like, yeah, you can get stuck and spend a little while staring at it. But the fact that you can't binge them, I think in some ways is what's great is that it's kind of a fun brain teaser exercise and you can move on with your day. And I'm not going to lose hours of sleep over it. That's for sure. Um, but we are, it sounds like both Wordle fans, even though I think we just learned recently that, that you and I both play. Yeah. And while I was playing the other day, I got a fun text message from you about an article talking a little bit about Elon Musk's uh, disposition of Tesla stock. Yeah. And so we're not talking about Tesla stock um, or anything really relating to it, other than the fact that Elon gave it away. Uh, And so this comes from an Associated Press article uh, that was written by Glenn Gamboa and Hallelujah Hedero, and it was posted on the 18th of February, if anybody wants to go back looking for it. I've got several issues with this. One, I have issues calling it an article. It's basically two and a half paragraphs. I'm not sure why we needed two authors for that. But the speculation here is that in November, according to an SEC filing, Elon donated... $5.7 billion, about 5 million shares of Tesla stock. That's a lot. Um, And so that is on record. That that is accurate. And what they are suggesting in this is that uh, Elon hasn't tweeted about this. He hasn't talked about this openly. Um, It seems very likely that this was to go along with the challenge that he gave uh, 
where he basically said, I would donate $6 billion to end world hunger because uh, the, it was challenged to him that if one person or if all the billionaires in the world would donate $6 billion, they could end world hunger. And he basically said, if you can tell me how you're going to do it, I'll donate it. That's what it seems like he is probably pre-funding or, or getting ready to deal with. Maybe not. Right. So that's obviously an easy link between the numbers of $5.7 billion and the fact that he was challenged to donate $6 billion. The article then suggests that he likely gave it to a donor-advised fund. And this sentence in particular rubbed me the wrong way, which is why we're going to talk about donor-advised funds today. Donor-advised funds are essentially charitable investment accounts in which donors can claim a tax deduction upfront, but aren't legally required to distribute the money. That seems like a really loaded sentence, Dan. Doesn't it to you? It does. It's full of half-truths or at least half of it is a half-truth, right? You get to pre-fund it and take a charitable deduction today. And then where it says it's not legally required to donate the money is really the place where I have issues. Yeah. The, a donor-advised fund, let's just zoom out and talk about what that is. A donor-advised fund is a charitable giving account that you can set up as an individual. And the reason we like them as a planning tool is that the hurdle to get one set up is pretty low, where something like a private foundation is generally only going to be used by fairly wealthy individuals. The hurdle here for a donor-advised fund, if you're somebody that is interested in giving money to charity, is not huge. Um, with, with, with pretty reasonable sums of money, these can make a lot of sense. And so we reach for them a lot as a planning tool for a client that might be charitably inclined. Uh, and might be having a very large liquidity event or some sort of high income situation where we're looking to offset that and kind of pre-fund some charitable giving. So that's the key situation that you and I are looking for. Right. So the way they work is you have funds that you want to use for a charitable gift. You can open a donor advised fund, contribute whatever you want this year, and also continue contributing over the years. The funds are irrevocably given to this fund and earmarked for charitable purposes. You retain an advisory role, essentially, where you can direct the investments and direct the giving of this money to, to charities, uh, but you're not required to distribute them immediately. They can sit, they can grow and be allocated for future giving. There's a bunch of really interesting implications here. The first of which, now, if you're listening to this going, yeah, I don't give that much money away, or I, I just write a check every year to you know the Salvation Army or whoever it is, this is something to pay attention to. First of all, and I think we've talked about this on our show before, Dan, if you've got appreciated stock in your portfolio, something with a, a low cost basis, a high gain, something you've held for a long time, that is a giving opportunity whether you're talking about a donor-advised fund or not. But if you're giving money to charity in cash and you have appreciated stock in a taxable account, now maybe those values don't line up and, and you can't get a single share to that charity because you didn't want to give them that much money or something like that. But in general, appreciated stock is much more beneficial to give because it eliminates two things. One, it eliminates your capital gain. And two, you still get the dollar-for-dollar dollar benefit for having given to the charity. So you can win twice when you gift with appreciated stock. That would be the first thing. 
you can do that into a donor advised fund, gift your appreciated stock into that fund, and it functions the same way, even if you will be distributing those funds to a charity later. We look at these often as a way to kind of solve two problems. Number one is we might have a big tax year and we might be trying to offset if you've got a bonus, if you've got a large you know, restricted stock award that vests this year, if you are liquidating a large piece of stock because now it's vested and you're and you're trying to convert, you know, some monopoly money into real money. What whatever it is that you're doing, if you're gonna have a year where your taxes are gonna go boom because you've got this really big influx of income that is out of the ordinary. And on the other hand, you're saying, well, I normally make a gift of $10,000 a year to these charities, right? And it could be one, it could be many. But if you give somewhere in that neighborhood, well, in this year that you've got the really big influx of, of income, you can kind of pre-fund what you're going to do for the next few years where you're not going to need that charitable deduction as much from a tax planning perspective. On a similar note, standard deductions have gone up pretty dramatically over the years. So a lot of people who've been giving nominal amounts each year may not be eligible to take deductions on those charitable gifts, and it could be a good idea to bunch those gifts into a single year so you can at least realize the tax benefit of that donation and then gift from something like a donor-advised fund to keep the, the level of giving smooth each year. So if I'm used to giving $500 a year, you know, maybe I throw a few thousand dollars into a fund, still give the $500 a year from that fund, but at least get the tax benefits for having front-loaded that and clearing the hurdle of the standard deduction. So what can't you do with a donor-advised fund? Because it sounds like a pretty flexible vehicle. Now, once you move money into one of these, and, and granted, there's a bunch of providers. So Fidelity Charitable, Schwab Charitable, Vanguard has one as well. Uh, there are smaller organizations that do these at a, at a different scale um, sometimes with your existing advisor. So there are some advisors that manage accounts for these. But um, for a lot of these folks, what we're going to talk about is just moving money into their pooled investments, right? So Fidelity is probably using Fidelity funds. Schwab is probably using Schwab funds, et cetera, right? Um, and there is a cost with these. So you are paying some costs to the administration of the fund. So uh, this is not a, a free service that they're providing. You cannot ever move that money back into your own name. And while it's true that in the case of the Elon donation, they're saying, well, he never has to distribute the money. There is not a requirement on a year-to-year basis that he has to distribute that money. So if he did, in fact, move the money into a donor-advised fund, it is a true statement that it could sit in there for a very long time. It's unlikely that that would be the case. And he can never move it back into his own name. So he receives no personal benefit from those dollars effectively ever again. Where and when he chooses to distribute those funds, he gets to make basically a grant recommendation. The language on all this sounds super squishy because if you're saying, well, I'm making a recommendation, what's, I mean, what if they just say no? In my experience, a donor advised fund provider, what they're trying to do is help you facilitate these transactions. And for legal reasons that protects their status as a fund operator, they are trying to make sure that money only goes to a qualified 501c3 that is allowed to be distributed this money. 
That's the big thing that they're doing for you here. The money has to go to a qualified 501c3 organization. They can't send it to Joe Schmo. They can't send it to, well, I've decided this person is eligible for a scholarship. It has to go to a scholarship fund, for example, that is already qualified. You can't then just simply decide where you want to send the money. That's what the administration is there to do and to protect. Right, absolutely. And so claiming that Elon has claiming that Elon has not made a benefit to society by making this gift, I think is, like we said, misleading because he can't pull that money back. It is now earmarked officially for a public charity. And uh, that gift will be made because there's no incentive for it not to be made. You know, even if if the fund uh, lives past his lifespan, the money is still designated for charity. Now, I saw an interesting stat earlier. I wish I could remember where I pulled it from, but the average lifespan of money in a donor-advised fund is 24 months. So most people are donating and have a planned kind of path towards distributing those funds, at least within the next couple of years. There's a couple of things that are interesting about a donor-advised fund. I'm going to go back into the pros column because I think that, again, this is a really interesting vehicle, and I, I think it's something that people don't know enough about. You can set up a successor trustee, basically, or a successor uh, person that is going to recommend gifts. So if you're creating this, for example, as like a family fund. So Dan, if you're creating the Maseka family charitable giving account, you could at some point make your daughter the manager of this account. So things that you've been giving to through your lifetime out of your fund, she could choose to either continue that or to give to different qualified 501c3s. And so you can kind of create this really multi-generational legacy of giving if you've put some real effort into what a donor-advised fund can do. The other thing that I, I was curious to look at, because I hadn't actually looked this up before, is what happens if, for example, you die and you haven't named a successor uh, that's going to direct the fund. Well, these big companies, and I looked specifically at Fidelity because I, I was on their website, they have more of a general giving fund that has an outline of what they're looking to advance, which is pretty broad-based research, benefit of society, increased capacity for nonprofits. Those types of things is what they were looking to do. And it would then go into their charitable giving, which is going to be directed by their group of trustees. So even if Elon Musk has set up a donor-advised fund, tomorrow gets hit by a bus, has never told the donor-advised fund where to send that money, that money should eventually get pooled with a more general giving fund and an endowment that is going to then be able to distribute those funds for the good of society. And so that that really rubbed me the wrong way that I was taking, yeah, this donor-advised fund thing, yeah, and he, he never has to do anything good with that because there's just no reason to have ever done it if that's the intent. Uh, and and I maybe I read too much malicious intent in in the author's words there, but that's really what struck me. Right, there was an unfair level of snark in the in the article or in the couple sentences thrown together as an article that I think uh, led readers in a particular direction. Now it does take us down a path of you know what is the best way to fund the public good and and whether or not um, a donor advised fund or or even a, a private foundation that does have to distribute five percent annually. I don't think that's any better personally, but um, you know if you're distributing five percent annually in perpetuity, you're never going to run out of that money either. Um, you know, it, it brings a question of, is this the right way for us to be funding projects for the public good? And and I do hope that Elon ultimately 
whether it's world hunger that that he tries to attack with with those dollars or or some other um, global impact that he's going to have. I really think about this a lot, and and maybe this is a weird thought. I don't want to make this in any way political. Uh, I think a lot about our tax dollars not being uh, represented correctly, or or maybe maybe even that the government doesn't do a good job from a PR perspective on letting us know what our tax dollars are doing. And I think back to a piece that Michael Lewis wrote for Vanity Fair back in, in 2017. I think it actually might have been a series of pieces. But, it, but in particular, he was talking about the U.S. Department of Agriculture and how incredibly broad their mandate is. For those that don't know, the Department of Agriculture does everything from supporting farmers, which is kind of what the, the, the department name sounds like. They also are the federal subsidization for school lunches, so uh, low-income families kind of on or below the poverty line all the way across the country. Subsidized school lunches flow through that. Um, there is all sorts of programs. They do scientific research and funding. Food safety runs through them, right? There's just like a lot that the Department of Agriculture ultimately is responsible for. And most Americans probably don't really think about all of those things. I think that same thing happens at a local level as well. And you know, you see a lot of these tax strategies being put into place to avoid taxation, where if I could donate money, just like a charity, to the Northern Virginia Road Improvement Fund, if I got a tax break for funding better roads in my locality, my state, these roads that I drive on where I'm worried potholes are going to take me out on a, on a day-to-day basis every spring, I think I might do that. Right, I, I think of that as a worthy cause. When I look at a tax bill, I go, really? Are you kidding me? And I think that's an interesting distinction between how I think of charitable work and like what I think the public good is benefiting from versus how tax dollars are being used, and do I think of it that way? Funnily enough, I think in Northern Virginia, a private company came in and said, I'll take care of that road for you and is collecting a toll, which we can call that a tax. Uh, it's very much a, a tax. Yeah, no, the, the privatization of some of these toll projects is really, really interesting, right? And they're, I mean, I can't think of a more long game because it's like 50 or 100 year long leases or some craziness that they end up signing up for and funding multi-billion dollar projects. That's an unbelievable strategy to me where, where there's clearly a lot of money looking for a home and they're willing to play the long game, which I can respect that. Um, but yeah, I think I think of the tolls as a bit of a phantom tax as well. Do you remember offhand who the company was that came in and did that? Oh gosh, I think there's been a couple of them, which which is actually frustrating in some ways because literally the variable toll systems work differently on roll on on roads that are right next to each other. You've got one road where they take a picture of your car, and you've got another road where you need like the Easy Pass transponder. Like I don't know, it's very strange. You've got like literally different systems. It, it's like going to a different grocery store and you're like, yeah, this all looks familiar, but I don't know where the milk is, right? Like you like literally have to figure out how each road works. I, I don't like that piece of it. Yeah. Going back to your PR problem for taxes, I, I sat as the chair of charitable giving on a board for a nonprofit a while ago, and we had a marketing guy on that board. And he said that if we want to raise funds, you need to tie every dollar given to a thing. And I think that's what you're saying about taxes is people are frustrated because you don't see your tax dollars at work. And I think there's a general impression that they're not stewarded well by whatever government you're, you're giving to. 
Uh, but to some extent, if you could say, we're going to fix, we're going to put this traffic light here, we're going to fix this pothole. I think people who experience those things every day are going to be more willing to give. Right. And it stops feeling like theft if I can feel good about what the money's going to. Right. And again, I, this isn't a fully fleshed out idea. I don't have a proposal here. Uh, it's it's not something where, where I think we're going to fix this. But I, I generally believe people are more willing to put their dollars to work if they can see the benefit and they can understand how it's helping them and helping their community. Right. I don't talk to anybody that looks at teachers and goes, wow, what, a, what an overpaid group of, of crybabies. I've had plenty of teachers that uh, in, in my life as friends and, and people that I respect a lot. And I go, that doesn't look like a role that I'd want to sign up for. That looks really hard. It looks like it's not uh, respected in the way that it should be. And there's like a constant war on like, how can we spend less on this, these education systems? And it's, that, does, that to me doesn't look like an accurate reflection of how most people think when I talk to them. Uh, but that's how it gets treated in the public perception. And yeah, I, I, would, I would contribute to the welfare of teachers if, if you made that something that I could contribute to directly. Is that where my property tax dollars are going? I have no idea, right? It's hard to tell. I think you need to run for public office and solve this issue. Zippy chance of that. <laughs> Zero chance. Every time we get into conversations like this, I feel like my mind always takes me to the kind of the peak of, well, if, if we're this passionate about it, we should get in there and solve it. And no one is quite ready to make that leap. No, uh, I've, I've got other things to do uh, in, in this current career that I'm in. I, I don't feel like I've accomplished everything that I need to as, as a financial planner and, uh, and now a podcaster. There we go. So, yeah, let, let's just put a bow on it. You know, donor advised funds, if you've got a tax situation that you're trying to mitigate, donor advised funds are a great tool. Yes, there's a little bit of a cost, there's a little bit of administration to them, but all things considered, it's a pretty low hurdle and it's a really, really nice way for you to start doing some tax planning in a way where you can offset gains, you can be strategic in nature. I don't want to vilify donor advised funds at, at all because I, I think they're an important thing uh, that we have in our back pockets as planners. And I don't know anybody that's ever set one up that has had poor intentions with them. Again, maybe that's just my my limited narrow scope view, but I think they're they're a great thing and we should do more of it, not less. I also want to emphasize that they're not only for the super wealthy in, in the world, right? They're very accessible to almost anyone who is charitably inclined. And in the U.S., as recently as 2015, they estimate that there are almost 270 million donor-advised funds in existence. So it's a popular tool that people are using. And you know, if, if any of what we talked about rings true to you and, and how you manage your personal finances, it's probably worth looking into to see if it's a good option. We hope that's been helpful for everybody. If you've got things you'd like to hear us chat about on our show, check your balances at outlook.com is the email address you can find us. We appreciate you tuning in. Hope to see you next week.